have your Bible, go ahead and open it to 2 Thessalonians, right there in chapter 1. These are two relatively short letters that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. The small, the growing church there who had, like the church in Corinth, many of its own problems, superstitions, false beliefs, needing of its own corrections. We won't spend a considerable amount of time in this letter at all this month. What we are intending to do is actually study the prayers of Paul in his letters. Now, without raising your hands rhetorically, answer the question, do you pray? Do you have a, a habit of prayer? Well, Paul certainly did, and he often records his prayers in his letters. Not only does he pray them himself silently before the Lord for the churches to whom he's writing, but he, he writes down his prayer. He records them, acknowledges them, and shares them with the churches. Paul and the apostles all throughout the New Testament are, are praying men. And they intend for the church to be a praying church. The question we need to begin this month is, do you pray? Not do you pray when you come to church or do you say a prayer before meals? Most of us can do that simply out of habit, ritual, or pressure. But do you pray when there is no obligation to do so? Are you a man or a woman who begins their day in prayer or seeks the Lord and his communion through prayer? It's been said that there is no clearer demonstration of the character of a Christian than the character of their prayer life. I want to be the first to admit that I have fallen so far short of the biblical standard of what a prayer life looks like. And I've been around the block long enough to know that many of you may share in that same failure. But I've also experienced seasons of sustained prayer rich and invigorating prayer, which has stimulated not only my own faith, but has helped me lift up others and encourage those who are around me. As I pray more deeply, so too others are lifted and encouraged in their own faith. If you want to know the measure of a Christian, measure their prayer life. Now, we're not here to guilt trip. We're not here to make all of you give an account for how many hours a day you spend in prayer, but rather I simply want to acknowledge the fact that the Bible encourages us, more strongly even, commands us and expects Christians to be a praying people. We have God's Word, which is how He speaks to us. It's His revelation to us. He's disclosed Himself in His Word to us. And of course, God knows us inside and out. He's created us he knows the thoughts we will have before we think them. He knows the words we will say before we speak them. And yet, he invites us into real, genuine relationship through prayer. As we hear and receive God's word in Scripture, we come to God in prayer. Prayer is essential to the Christian's life. To illustrate that, let me give an example from history. In 1952, uh, a woman named Florence Chadwick was a, a well-known long-distance swimmer. In fact, she had at that point already swam the English Channel back, forward and back, which is an astounding feat. The, this is the, the length of, of a marathon in the water swimming. One day, she decided that she was going to swim from Catalina Island on the West Coast all the way down to mainland California. And that's the distance of some 26 miles to swim in the ocean. On the day that she chose to do this, it was an overcast day, and it was chilly, and it was fog on the water, so much so that she couldn't actually see the boats that were with her for her protection. 
Still, she set out, and as she swam, she had these small boats that would accompany her, partly for her safety, to, to watch for sharks, but also to make sure that she didn't drown. And her coach was there on one of the boats to encourage her, to press her, to keep up her endurance. About 15 hours in, she wanted to give up. It was grueling, and she begged to be taken out of the water. And yet her, her coach there, her trainer, urged her persistence. He would tell her over and over again, the shore is not too far away. You're almost there. Keep going. Of course, he didn't know. He had some sense of where they might be. But because of the fog, it was invisible. Eventually, exhaustion took over and Florence just stopped swimming. She just gave up, and so she was pulled into the boat. And as she made her way to land, she discovered that she was only a half mile away from the shore. Well, obviously defeated at a news conference the next day, she lamented that if I had only seen the shore, I think I would have made it. If she had only known how close she was and how far she had left to go, she would have made it. But what was she suggesting? Well, that her endurance really wasn't depleted. Her perseverance was still there. She had a reservoir that she could have tapped into had she known that she was just a half mile away. That a clear vision of what lies ahead of her and what it would take to get there would have made all the difference to her perseverance. In fact, two months later, she, she proved her point. On a bright, sunny day, she plunged back into the sea, and she swam the entire distance. Well, in a strange way, Florence's story here teaches us about prayer. It teaches us something about what it means to persevere in the faith through prayer. So I want to submit to you that prayer is not simply the means by which we talk to God, though it is not less than that. It's how we voice our prayers, our concerns, our petitions for ourselves and one another. It's how we come to God in confession and how we come to God in praise. But prayer actually works for us. And much like the, the light that shows the, the shore for the swimmer in the water, prayer enables us to persevere in our own faith by bringing clarity to our situations, by, by giving confidence to us in our contexts. In fact, it, it gives us further context in our own situations to understand what God may indeed be doing. Prayer enables us to persevere in our own faith, in our own trials, in our own struggles. Because it brings us clarity as we seek the Lord's wisdom. We seek the Lord's help. We seek the Lord's insight. We pray for clarity on issues. We pray for confidence or peace regarding certain situations. And the Lord gives us and provides for us context in which to think rightly about our lives. It's the way in which we remind ourselves that our destination is just around the corner. That we have perhaps just a half mile left to go before we make it to the shore. That's what we're going to begin with this morning. Is how we can understand the work of prayer in the life of a Christian. The goal for our series for the rest of the month, these five sermons and studies and the prayer prayers of Paul are meant to help you understand just how vital and important prayer is if you think that you could be a more faithful prayer like me. I want to implore you to listen carefully. And of course, we've given you plenty of oppor uh, opportunities to, to grow and take those steps towards growing more faithfully in your prayer, not only by coming here, studying, learning from God's Word, but the prayer guide we have for you there on the outside table that 
Bill was able to make for you, 30 days of, of short prayer prompts with scriptures so that you can read, study, and pray. If you lack the words or lack the thoughts to pray, read this. Indeed, even in the back of that prayer guide is a 30-day psalm reading guide that will help you give words to your prayers as you read the prayers of David, for instance. Ultimately, the hope here is that we would indeed be a praying church, that in this church and in your life, there would be a fostering and a cultivating of a true, genuine prayer life. Not external discipline only, but true life that comes through praying to God. So I want to do that this morning by looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 3 through 12. And then we'll see Paul's passion for prayer. He speaks to the Thessalonians. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted just as well to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, Now, as we study this portion of Scripture, would you help us to grow in passion for prayer? Not simply as a means or an external consideration of work, but genuinely as an act of devotion and communion with you. We pray and ask now, in Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the month, we're going to be studying five ways prayer deepens our faith, and particularly as we seek to grow in our own prayer life, how we are to possess a certain passion for prayer. And this week in our passage, we see that Paul here demonstrates a passion for gospel grace. Woven throughout his prayer in this introductory chapter, Paul is, is displaying a passion for gospel grace. He speaks often of the grace that the, the Thessalonians possess and for which he is thankful, and he offers prayer that they, through God's grace, may grow and continue to abound in these graces so that God would be glorified. What we're going to see now in verses 3 through 10 is really Paul's prayer framework that we're to adopt as a praying people. The first of his framework, the first pillar, if you will, is that of thankfulness. He He gives reason for his praying and giving thanks to God. In verse 3, he says, We ought always to give thanks 
to God for you, brothers, as is right. He gives three reasons for which he ought to give thanks to God. That is through prayer, thankful to God for these reasons. First, because your faith, he says, is growing abundantly. Second, because the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And fourth, though the syntax is slightly different, we see because he boasts in their steadfastness and faith in their persecutions and afflictions in which they endure. So Paul prays a prayer of thankfulness to God on behalf of the church there in Thessalonica because they are growing in their faith. They are increasing in their love, and they are depending upon God in faithful perseverance. Look firstly at their growing faith. He says, your faith is growing abundantly, and therefore it is right, he says, to give thanks to God for a growing faith. By this he means a reliance upon God. Now, they're, they're facing persecution. And with persecution comes doubt. And they are increasing, that is growing in their faith rather than shrinking back from it. So instead of becoming more reliant on their own strength, they're becoming more reliant upon God's strength. Secondly, he says that their love for one another is increasing. It too is growing. It's not simply a love for God that deepens their faith, their reliance upon God for all of his good provisions that is growing, but actually their own love for one another that has increased. Undoubtedly, because as they grow deeper in their faith and love and reliance upon God, so too do they learn to rely upon God's people. And their love for God's people increases with it. Then he gives thanks for their, pers- their perseverance in the faith. In all of their persecutions, in their afflictions, they are enduring. Friends, your perseverance in the faith, your reliance upon God's grace, your love for one another as it increases, as it deepens, as it broadens, is all the more reason to give thanks to God, but we recognize as it comes from an act of God's grace in the gospel. The question is, how are they able to do this? grow in this, it's because of the grace of God that was given to them in the gospel. We see this mentioned twice in the first two verses as he introduces himself in the letter. Look up in verses 1 and 2. He says, this is Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is shorthand for the communion you have in the gospel with one another. You have peace with and from God, and grace is given to you through Jesus. So the, the, the main tenet, or one of the two main tenets of Paul's framework of prayer, that if you indeed desire to be a praying people, need to build in your own framework, is that of genuine gospel thankfulness for the graces that exist in the lives of others. Thankfulness, perhaps in your own life, but also as you turn your eye to those around you, you are thankful for the grace in their life, their growing faith, their abounding and increasing love, their faithful perseverance and endurance in their own trials. They are a gift to you, and it is right, Paul says, to give thanks to God for such things. So thankfulness clearly must be a central tenet in our prayer life. But for what often do we often give thanks? Usually we give thanks for that which we are most, most thankful, that which we most cherish, that which we most prize. Think of your own prayers. We pray often for our health, for our provisions, our, our income. We pray for our material success. We pray for the provision of one thing or another. And these, of course, are not wrong things to pray for. God intends for us to come to him as a father for such things. But Paul here demonstrates that at the heart of prayer, there must be a heart of thankfulness. Thankfulness for gospel 
grace. Grace in and through Christ that redeems us from our sins, that brings us to peace with the Father rather than continued hostility and enmity. Thankful for gospel grace in Christ that is growing, abounding, steadfast, that is enduring. So therefore, friends, let us desire to have the same framework of values. What we value in this life is the grace that abounds to sinners like you and me. And therefore, that thankfulness, that value is reflected in our prayers. It compels us to pray for others with real, genuine gratitude because of the grace that they have received, because of the grace that they are growing in, because of the love they have for others and have demonstrated because of their perseverance and their affliction. So that's the first tenet of Paul's framework for prayer. The second, thankfulness and confident hope. We'll go on to say in verses 5 through 10 that he's confident in his prayers that God will vindicate them and ultimately bring about the final consummation of all things. See, he orients his prayers around the reality of the coming kingdom of God. They're enduring in their faith, which is evidence, he says in verse 5, of the righteous judgments of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you also are suffering. And God considers it just to replay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant you relief to those who are afflicted, as well as to us. When the Lord is revealed, he says in verse 7, from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord, Jesus. He orients his prayers of thankfulness for their endurance because he ultimately sets the longer scope of his prayers to confidently hoping in the return of Jesus to vindicate sinners who are justly or unjustly afflicted and to visit retribution against those who persecute Christians and who do not believe the gospel. So he's orienting his prayers here around the reality of the coming kingdom of God. There's an eschatological hope and focus in his prayer meaning he's thinking of the end of things to come. He's not simply thanking them for their perseverance in this current trial only, but their trial in light of the coming kingdom in which all things will be made new, which all things will be repaid, which justice will prevail, which those who do evil will be repaid according to God's justice. And so he references this kingdom as their true home, that they will soon enter into. He says to them as the coach and the trainer said to Florence, you are almost there. God will repay. In verse 5, he says that you would be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. You are demonstrating that God's faithfulness to you in your prayer and in your justification and indeed your endurance will give you the consideration of worthiness by God to enter into the kingdom of God. And this doesn't mean that they're working for their salvation. God has granted them entrance into the kingdom of God by virtue of their justification. But what he means is, is that you are being brought into your true home through your suffering, through your working, and through your confident hoping that God indeed will make all things new again. So he's speaking ultimately of, of this coming day when Jesus returns and he establishes his final complete rule and reign victoriously in the new heaven and the new earth, in which all things are made new again. And so he fixes his prayers and his gratitude to that coming reality. And there's two truths to that reality of the coming kingdom that Paul focuses on. The first is the believer's vindication, and the second is the unbeliever's retribution. That is, the hope that Paul has is that one day these things will be made right. Your suffering, your persecution, your affliction, your trials, in which you are enduring and for which I give thanks in your endurance, will come to an end and you will be vindicated. All those who persecute you will be brought to justice. You will enter into the kingdom of God. You, through your suffering, your trials, and your endurance, will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. That's confident hope in the believer's vindication, but he turns, you notice, to the unbeliever's 
retribution. There is a real justice awaiting those who do not obey the gospel. In verse 8, Jesus will come in flaming fire and inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and be marveled at along all, among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now, this is a stark and so, sober warning to those who are outside of the gospel. Those who do not believe and obey the gospel will find themselves in unrepentance under the threatening judgment of God. In fact, if you're not a believer this morning, you hear, you're listening, you're studying, this is God's warning to you, perhaps for the last time, that you will suffer eternal destruction if you persist in your enmity and hostility against him, if you persist in your failure to know him, in your disobedience to the gospel, as he sits in his word, calling you to himself to believe, there will be retribution who awaits the unbeliever. Paul says these two realities, the believer's vindication and the unbeliever's retribution, should be cause for great hope. And therefore, as he prays in thankfulness for what the Lord is doing and growing the faith and the grace of these believers, you can ground that hope in the Lord's ultimately returning, in the coming kingdom reality that awaits those who are suffering. So we must pray then, as Paul does, with gratitude for gospel grace in the lives of those for whom we pray. And we must pray confidently in God's ultimate vindication at the return of Christ. That if we must be both grateful for God's grace in ourselves and in others in this world, and then pray fervently and expectantly for the world to come. So prayer's framework rests upon those two things, thankfulness and confident hope. Well, secondly, look in verse 11, we see prayers worthy petitions. Verses 3 to 10, we saw the, the framework of prayer. Now we see the worthy petitions of prayer in verse 11. For all of this, he says in verse 11, to this end, we always pray for you. What are their prayers? That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may full, fully resolve, fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are two primary petitions here that are grown out of the framework of thankfulness and confident hope. That framework controls and orients Paul's prayers, and then he goes to God and offers a petition. He, he, he requests specific things for the Thessalonians. To this end, he says, he prays that they would be counted worthy of his calling that God would make them worthy of his calling. That's the first petition. In, in Paul's writings, God's calling is, is almost always salvation. It refers to God's saving work. Not simply invitation, but salvation. So what does Paul, of course, mean when he prays that the Thessalonians would be made worthy of his calling. Well, he means that they would grow in all the things that please God, that they would live up to the calling that they have received. He has given thanks and even boasts in their growth and faith in the gospel and all graces. And he prays now specifically that they would continue to grow in these things which makes them worthy. Paul, who, who, who is contained, really constrained by the framework of thankfulness for the gospel grace he brings here, he simply prays for more. He doesn't just rest on the laurels of the Thessalonians 
faith. He prays for more. He offers his prayers ultimately with this eternity in mind and so prays for these eternal values to be present and to be increasing in the lives of Christians who have been saved by grace. Then be counted worthy of the calling. Elsewhere, Paul will say that they were to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called, is another way he's put it in Ephesians. And this prayer is not a prayer that should engender a false view of works righteousness, that they'll earn or curry favor with the Lord. Rather, it's simply asking God not only to count believers worthy, but notice, to make them worthy so that they may be counted as such. That is, Paul here is essentially asking that God will so work in their lives, so make them worthy, that ultimately he will count them worthy. So when he says that we pray that God may make you worthy of his calling, the calling is his, the justification is his, the salvation is his, the worthiness is his, and the endeavoring and the making and the forming of such worthiness is his as well. That's why Paul is praying in the first place. There's no use in praying to God to do something in which you're required to do. Instead, he's praying, of course, to God to work that which God intends. He moves from a, a view of works righteousness. He rejects works righteousness, and he says, may God make you worthy of his calling. He who called you qualifies and equips you. This reminds me of a quote, perhaps you heard it, from Augustine, who's one of the early church fathers, and in his own book called Confessions, which is really his autobiography, he writes this line about sanctification. He writes to the Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Command what you will. Lord, my life is yours. Ask of me anything. But give what you command. Augustine recognizes that he does not have within himself the strength to do all that God can command him to do. God has the right to command it. Augustine doesn't have the strength to obey it. And so he prays, God, command what you will, whatever you want. Grant to me the ability to do this. Make me obedient. Contained in that beautiful prayer is the truth that we must come to God for grace who alone is able to make us worthy of the calling to which he has called us. Friends, as much as we want to, we cannot earn our favor with the Lord. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot keep ourselves in our salvation, and we cannot sustain ourselves in our faith. The Bible is replete with expectations that are way above our head. And we can only obtain these things, submit to these things, obey these things, if God himself works us or in us to obey them. This is the mystery of God's providence, the mystery of sanctification in many ways, but it is God who makes us to do this. What does Paul say elsewhere? He said, it is God who is at work within you. When he says here to the Thessalonians to work out your prayer, work out your faith with trembling and thanksgiving, it is God, he says, who is at work within you. Paul, of course, assumes and expects this for every Christian. This is the attitude that we would come to Christ in prayer for the grace we need to do what he has called us to do, to count us worthy. And praying for such worthiness is, in effect, praying for gospel grace. This passion that we must have in our prayers for gospel grace is the passion that he would work in us that which he needs to so we can fulfill that which he has called us to. And only those who are found worthy will ever inherit the kingdom of God. And the only hope of our being counted worthy is if we are made worthy by God. And so we must plead with God, like Jacob, wrestle and contend with God and, and, and not fail to let go until he has indeed made us worthy of the calling to 
to which he has called us. We plead with him, wrestle and contend with God that our children and our family and ourselves and our fellow believers would be counted worthy of his calling. As a side note, let me commend to you, use the language of scripture here as you pray for one another. As you pray for me, Lord, make Bobby worthy of his calling. So that's the first petition, that they would be counted worthy of his calling. Secondly, the second petition here, worthy petition of prayer, is that, is that God would fulfill each of the Christian's faith-prompted purposes. And there again in verse 11, it says that he would fulfill every resolve for good. So he prays that God would make them worthy of his calling, and he's praying that God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So what's the natural consequence of the spirits working in us as God makes us more worthy of his calling? What's the natural consequence of our lives being conformed to his will and to his word? Well, the natural consequence of this is real gospel transformation. You become more like Jesus and you are changed from one degree of glory to another, as Paul would say elsewhere. And so through the gracious work of the spirit's Sanctification is the word we'll use. We're becoming more like Jesus through the work of God. We become so prompted and shaped by goodness and faith in the gospel of God's grace that we change. Our purposes change. Our goals change. Our worthy resolves change. And so our prayers would align themselves that God would do that which we resolve to do in the gospel. It's not only our character that is to be shaped by faith, growing more humble or more holy. It's not only our character that is to be shaped by faith, but the very plans and intentions, that which we purpose and set out to do, these are also born from the same work of gospel grace. I'm going to give you just another Augustine quote, and this is the last one. Elsewhere in the Confessions, he writes to the Lord again, your best servant is the one who is less intent on hearing from you what accords with his own will and more on embracing with his will what he has heard from you. I'll just say that again. Your best servant is the one who is less intent on hearing from you what accords with his own will, and more on embracing with his will what he has heard from you. That is the resolves and the purposes and the intentions and the plans and the desires of a Christian are no longer set by the agenda of our lives and passion, but are set by the gospel, are set uniquely by the working of the Spirit in our lives. As we grow in grace, as he makes us more worthy of the calling to which we have been called, our plans change. They revolve around the gospel. They are set no longer by our own desires, but which God has put in front of us. Again, Paul also assumes and expects this to be true for every Christian. That if you are really growing in the faith, your own plans, actions, what you determine in your life are all set by the gospel. That someone can look metaphorically at your calendar and say, what's a priority in their life? It's, it's the gospel. It's the Lord. It's serving and loving God's people out of a love for God himself for his glory. And therefore, let all of us, each of us, examine our own plans, the agendas, the priorities, asking again and again and again, what are our purposes here? What's our goal What's our mission? What are we attempting to do for Christ's sake? And as we find answers to such questions, we must then, like Paul, intercede with God. That is, pray to God that he, by his great power, might bring those good purposes, those faith-prompted acts to bountiful fruitfulness. So Christian, as you grow in faith, and as your own plans change from being less about yourself to more with what the God would want to do, God would want to do with your life, you then pray that He would bring that about in your life. 
we would pray that he would fulfill every resolve and good work of faith that have been informed and rooted in Scripture itself. So those are the two petitions he prays there. Rooted in the framework of thankfulness and a confident hope, he prays to be counted worthy of their calling and to be fulfilled in their planning by God's purposes. In the next verse, in the beginning of the next verse, verse 12, we see then prayer's goal. The goal of our prayers, he says, so that, and for this reason, what's the purpose? What's the goal? the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. So the ultimate end of our prayer is not the fulfillment of good resolves. It's not the growth and grace and the abounding of love. The ultimate end of goal of our prayer and our calling and the work of our good resolves fulfilled by his power really comes in two parts. First, the ultimate goal and end of our prayers is that the Lord Jesus might be glorified in us. That is, in consequence of the growing maturity and fruitfulness on the part of believers, that growing faith, that abounding love, would result in the glorification of Jesus. That's the end of all of our actions. All we are to do is to the glory of God. And so whether you, you serve Uh, those in the church, whether you sweep, vacuum, you preach, you do sound, whatever it may be, the goal of your service, the goal of your faith is that in you and in your growth and in your grace, God himself would be glorified. Well, that's fairly straightforward. That makes sense if you've been a Christian for some time, that in you, God would be glorified or Christ himself would be glorified. The strange here part is next, that Christ would be glorified and that you would be glorified. In him. That's a strange thing to think about that we ourselves would be glorified. See, part of Paul's ultimate goal or aim in his prayers is that the Lord would be glorified in us and you and him. And what's meant by this? Well, certainly it's not that we should usurp any praise or credit for our righteousness, for our increasing faith. We've already recognized that his. God who makes us worthy. Well, no, rather, Paul is again looking to that final day of consummation. Remember, he's already thinking about the return of Jesus when the Lord comes in glory and in flaming fire in verse 8. And we then will be glorified with him and in him. This is, of course, the goal of the salvation. Think of Romans chapter 8, verse 30. He says, those whom he called, he is also justified. And those whom he justified, what? He will glorify. But if we follow the golden chain of salvation, we end in the glorification of believers. You and me and Christ are glorified as the end result of our salvation. Of course, in our own glory, Christ is all the more glorified. But remember the first petition here Paul prays to be made worthy of his calling. Well, that comes to be made worthy ultimately results in our glory. If our calling, our salvation is to be fulfilled, it is to be fulfilled ultimately in our glorification. But our glorification in Christ. And so this ultimate goal Paul has in view, it's the transformation of one degree of glory to another. And so, though we pray for partial and incremental transformation in this life, ultimately, we are to pray with the goal in mind of our complete and total transformation. That is, we pray that we might become ultimately what we will be. See, God is. We are becoming. And so, we pray, as Paul here prays, in order that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified, and that we would be glorified in him, that we would become that which we ultimately will be, glorified sons and daughters in the splendor of God's presence in the new heavens and new earth. And so Paul's framework for increasing faith and confident hope, thankfulness for increasing faith and confident hope, has really as its reference point 
this ultimate goal, that we would be glorified in Christ and that our glorification itself as a result of our salvation would become the most spectacular means of bringing Christ glory. So ultimately, it's not about our glory. It's about the glory of Jesus. But as we come to share and are glorified in Christ, he all the more is splendor. So we've seen prayer's framework, prayer's worthy petitions. We've seen prayer's goal. Lastly, in the second part of verse 12, we see prayer's ground. The ground of prayer, the means by which these things come about. See, the ground in verse 12b is this. All of this he prays in order the Lord may be glorified in us and we in him according to, that is, by means of, through the grace of our Lord, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the ground of prayer is gospel grace. The grace of our God and the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. In other words, the ground for Paul's prayer, this is the ground for our prayer, is an entire biblical vision that recognizes the centrality of gospel grace as the means of God's work in our lives. That is, all of this is happening through grace. All of it's happening because God has given himself to us in his son, that Jesus has suffered a death for sin that he did not deserve for us. And all of this, this calling, this redemption, this salvation, sanctification, this coming glory is all because of God's grace. Central to our prayers then must be gospel grace because it is the means by which God has worked in our lives. Everything Paul has asked for here is only available on the basis of God's grace. In fact, the Savior himself cannot be glorified in our lives, nor can we be finally glorified apart from the grace that God provides. It's all dependent on grace in and through the gospel. So what does Paul do here? Paul prays that all of this would come about by the means of gospel grace. He's looking to the return of Jesus. Paul is envisaging uh, the final consummation this final vindication of all things. Having truly in view this coming kingdom of Christ's rule and reign, he's thinking of heaven as he prays. And so if we truly, you and I, truly reflect on this powerful, central reality of the gospel grace with this same view towards the end, this same eschatological view, the same heavenward view, our prayers are transformed. If you want passionate prayers, friends, you must pray in light of the eternal kingdom that is to come. Our prayers will be transformed. Gospel grace will open up to us the kingdom reality in which our prayers, your prayers, and our purposes and your purposes will be established and fulfilled all by God's grace. That's the beauty of prayer. We pray as we read earlier in Hebrews, before the throne, confidently approaching because of our high priest. We are able to enter into this kingdom under the rule and reign of Jesus, looking forward to the day in which all things are brought near again. And so, let me simply in this way, brothers and sisters in Christ, at the heart of all of our praying must be that biblical vision of the world to come all of which comes through gospel grace. And that vision, that vision embraces who God is, what he has done, who we are, where we are going, what we must value and cherish. That vision drives us toward increasing conformity with Jesus, toward lives that are lived in light of eternity, toward a heart echoing of the church's ongoing cry at the end of Revelation, even so, come, Lord Jesus. That vision must shape our prayers so that the things that most concern us in prayer are those that concern the heart of God. Friends, then we will persevere in our praying. 
then our prayers will be passionate and lively and not dull and boring. They'll be filled with life as we pray for one another because we are thankful for God's grace. We are confident in God's vindication of Christians and God's retribution against unbelievers. We are thankful and looking forward to the vindication of all God's work and ultimately the coming kingdom in which we will be called and made worthy to enter into. Then we will persevere in our praying until we reach the goal God himself has set for us. Friends, as you consider your own prayer life and you endeavor on the journey this month to pray with us together, I want you to think about the framework of Paul's prayer. Thankfulness and confident hope. Looking to Christ's return that then informs of how we give thanks for the grace of others, how we deepen our own faith and expectation for God to come and make all things new again. And as we seek through prayer the petitions that he would fulfill and change us and make us and bring all of these things about because he alone can do it. If we begin this month of prayer with this framework in mind, with a passion for gospel grace, and I do believe sincerely that you will see in your own life a revival of love and genuine affection and prayer for God. That's our goal. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful, Lord, for your work, mercy, and gospel grace in Christ. For without this grace, we would be nothing. We would be condemned. We would be judged. And the retribution against all the ungodly and unrighteous would await us at the return of Jesus. But thanks be to God, we have been transformed. We indeed have been called, and you even now are working by your spirit to make us worthy of that calling. And so, Father, we are indebted to you. We're indebted to gospel grace. And just as we sing, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let your goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Lord, would we, through prayer, remember and focus on gospel grace that binds our heart to the clarity of the gospel so that we would see always that we are so close to the shore of Canaan's land so that we may persevere in truth and in grace. We love you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.